All right. Good morning, church family. Great to be with you guys every Sunday. I'm thankful to be able to worship with you. Uh, You know, if you're joining us for the first time today, we want to say thank you. It's awesome to have all the little kids in here with us this morning. It's cool. Um, But uh, if you're joining us for the first time today, thank you for being here. We normally do a little bit more singing than what we did today, but uh, for the past three sun for the past two Sundays. I have preached for like an hour each Sunday, and so I owed the, the band an apology, but then I started preparing my sermon last night, and, and I was like, guys, I'm sorry, it might go like an hour again. So uh, if you're new with us today, prepare your hearts. Uh, we might go for an hour, we'll see. Um, and the longer I talk on this intro, the longer the message is gonna go. So um, glad you guys are joining us today. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Jason Wing, and I would love to say hi to you if you're joining us online. Shoot us a little message on Facebook or on YouTube and let us know that you're here. We'd love to just say hi to you as well. Um, I want to get right into the message today, and I want to start off by asking everybody a question. This is one of the most important questions I think that Christians need to be ready to answer. The question is this, why do we believe the Bible is trustworthy? Why do we believe the Bible is trustworthy? That's the question. Everything we believe as Christians is rooted from the Bible. Um, You know, you you at some point will probably be asked, why do you believe the Bible is true? How can you trust the Bible? You need to have an answer ready for that question. If it comes from a coworker, a friend, family member, those of us who are raising little children, like those that were just in the room, they're probably gonna grow up sometime and say, hey, how can we really trust the Bible? We need to have an answer for that. I wonder this morning, do you have an answer for that question? Why do you trust the Bible? You know, I... uh, I went through a time where after graduating from Cedarville University, which I realize many of you are getting close to graduation uh, next week, I was excited for you guys. Um, But right after graduation, I remember thinking like, man, all this stuff I've been taught about the Bible, I now know, but like, do I trust that the Bible is trustworthy? And I had to work that out. You know, if, if that's ever been a thought in your mind, You need to have an answer to that question. This is week three in our sermon series called Asking for a Friend. And in this sermon series, we are addressing questions that Christians are often afraid to ask out loud. Things we think about on the inside, but we're afraid to express on the outside. Um, Two weeks ago, we addressed the big question of how can we as Christians believe in a God who allows suffering in the world? Last week, we, we answered the question like, do I really have to forgive that person? And that person being the person that comes to mind every time the word forgiveness is brought up, right? And uh, let me just stop for a second and say, I've really appreciated many of the follow-up conversations after last week's sermon. I know that issues of forgiveness are incredibly personal. Um, and one of the things we touched on last week was the idea of reconciliation and that you, you know you have a forgiving heart when you're willing to move toward reconciliation with someone. I do wanna add a little bit of a clarifier. I, you know, I know that um, attitudinal forgiveness is, is, uh, is important. We must be there. We want to have the heart of Jesus that hangs on the cross and says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. But reconciliation, you might have attitudinal reconciliation, but the practical nature of reconciliation can look different given different people's circumstances. So I'm saying that to you to just say I understand that Reconciliation can be a complex issue. And if you're a person who listened to that sermon last week and you're like, ah, oh, I could, what does reconciliation look like for me, you know? I just wanted to let you know, uh, I'd be happy to talk with you, pray with you. Our staff would be willing to talk with you, pray with you about that because we realize it can be complex. But that's what we've covered over the past two weeks. Issues of suffering, issues of forgiveness. Um, this week, as we talk about trusting the scripture, this is, this is our third and final week in this series called Asking for a Friend. We're gonna wrap things up this week. I think this has been a great series for us. I appreciate this very much. Uh, One of the things we did was ask you guys to send in your questions about, you know, what do you have? What are the questions you find yourself asking on the inside but maybe not, you know, expressing on the outside? You guys sent in some great questions. Obviously, we don't, we're not gonna cover them all in this series, but I just wanna let you know I have a running list of all those questions. We are gonna address those in future sermons, future sermon series, classes we offer at the church, or various resources we make available. So just know that your other questions aren't lost on me. Today, we're gonna close this series by talking about why we can trust the Bible. Just like with every sermon in this series, I've tried to recommend resources um, to you that I think are helpful I recommend a few resources to you today regarding this subject matter. The first one is a book called Why Trust the Bible by a pastor named Greg Gilbert. 
He's connected with Southern Seminary, he's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. Actually, interestingly, we had a member from his church here today teaching one of our uh, adult classes earlier this morning, so that was, that was a cool connection. But that book is very accessible, very readable, uh, but very, um, also very solid. Uh, I, I also, if you really want an in-depth study of why you can trust the Bible, I recommend Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. It's a very extensive study series. Uh, it's been very helpful to me. It was, it was incredibly helpful to me after I graduated college and was questioning all these things about the Bible. And then the last one I want to recommend to you is a video, um, a handful of videos that you can find on YouTube or wherever just called Why I Believe the Bible is True by Vody Bauckham. Um, again, when I listened to these teachings 15, you know, 18 years ago, they were really helpful to me. Um, and so I just commend all those to you, and I hope that you maybe can snap a picture of that, whatever's on the screen, and just take a look at those later if you think it's helpful. So today's big question, why do we believe the Bible is trustworthy? Let me start out today by giving you two reasons, two, two not-so-good reasons to believe that the Bible is trustworthy, all right? Two not-so-good reasons. The first not-so-good reason is this. It's because that's the way mama raised me, <laughs> right? Um, if you ask people why they believe what they believe, you know, why do they trust the Bible? Honestly, a lot of times people will just say, well, you know, that's just the way I was raised. And, and uh, I want to say, I love my mom, but my mom didn't always tell me the truth. If my mom's watching online, mom, you know what I'm talking about. When I was growing up, mom used to tell me, hey, Jason, you, if you're going outside, you need to put a winter cap on because you might catch a what? Cold. We all know we don't catch viruses through the top of our head, right? Right? Like, you just figure these things out. Like, mama didn't always tell the truth. You know, can, it's not a good enough reason to say, I, I believe the Bible because my parents taught me. We, we all know that. You know, we, we know that in other cult- cultures around the world, sometimes parents will teach their kids things like, hey, you know what? Um, offering children as sacrifices to these other pagan gods is a good thing. You don't want to just accept their word for it. Um, we, we know that some cultures around the world will, will teach that, you know, uh, we should go out and murder infidels and, you know, stuff like that. Very extreme cultures elsewhere where, principally speaking, it just doesn't cut it to say we believe what we believe just because mama taught us, okay? That's the first not-so-good reason. Another not-so-good reason to believe the Bible is true is because, you, you know, a lot of people say, I tried it and it changed my life. I tried it and it changed my life. Like, a lot of Christians will say that. Um, there are a lot of people in, this, in, in history that have had very personal experiences that have changed the course of their life. Spiritual experiences. People like, uh, you know, Joseph Smith. People like David Koresh. People like Malcolm X, Adolf Hitler. People like that where they've had very personal spiritual experiences that have changed their life. That doesn't necessarily mean it was good. And, and you think about the guy who like you might meet at AA and, and in AA you're taught to, you know, you got to identify your higher power. You know, sometimes people are like, well, you know, the tree in my backyard is my higher power. Well, you know, because you believe in this higher power of the tree in your backyard, you might, that might be your personal experience, but let's not act like, you know, trusting the Bible should be on the same plane as trusting the tree in your backyard. I mean, it's, it's not the same thing. These, these two reasons by themselves, you know, they're, they're just not good enough. They're not so good reasons to consider the Bible trustworthy. So what are some good reasons? Today, I want to show you six good reasons that you can consider the scripture trustworthy. I want to go through these actually in an acronym. Um, the acronym that I want to use today is the word CHAMPS. I know it's kind of cheesy, uh, and, and in general, I'll just admit, I try to stay away from acronyms in general because I think most of the time they're cheesy. But this is such a complex question. It's a, the answer to this question is, is so complex, it's kind of hard to remember unless you can kind of put it in a, a system that helps you remember it easily. And in this case, I think the acronym CHAMPS helps, helps us with that. So I hope that it helps you when you leave here today. I, um, I pray that as we go through this today, I pray that your faith as a Christian will be strengthened. My prayer is that if you're a Christian in the room and you've wondered, like, how can we trust the Bible? I hope that today, maybe some of your doubts are alleviated. I hope that you leave here today understanding, you know what? We actually have good reasons to trust the Bible. Uh, if you're a person who's here today and you're maybe a skeptic or a seeker, and this has been a hurdle for you to come and believe in Jesus Christ and embrace the Christian faith, I hope that today your hurdle is removed. 
But here's what I hope most of all. I hope that we don't just leave here today saying, you know what, I can trust the Bible. I hope that you leave here today saying, you know what, this makes me treasure the God of the Bible. This makes me treasure the Christ of the Bible. So that's where we're going today. Six reasons to consider the Bible to be trustworthy. Acronym of CHAMPS. The first letter, C, stands for Christ. Christ. We can trust the Bible because Christ trusted the scriptures of his day. This is very simple for us as Christians. Christians will all say, you know what? I I trust Jesus Christ. But if we trust Christ and Christ trusted the scriptures, we can trust the scriptures. It's really that simple for us from a logical argumentative perspective. Um, The reason why I start out here is because I think it's very common in our culture today for people to say, you know what, Um, I I do, I I like Jesus, I'll take Jesus, but not so much the Bible. I want you to know right away, if you take Jesus, you're taking a Jesus that trusted the Bible, right? He wanted you to believe the Bible. I want you to understand today a few things. Consider these things. Consider, first of all, who Jesus affirmed uh, was a real person from the Old Testament, right? Did Jesus think the Bible was real? Let's, let's see what he thought about the Old Testament scriptures. Who did Jesus confirm was real? Jesus confirmed that Adam and Eve were real. Matthew chapter 19, verses three through six. Jesus confirmed that Abel, Adam and Eve's son, was real. Matthew 23, verse 35. By the way, you're never gonna be able to write all these down. Just listen online later and you can get all the notes. Jesus believed that Noah was real. Matthew 24, verse 37 through 38. Luke chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. Jesus believed Abraham was real. Luke 13, Luke 19, John chapter eight. Jesus believed Isaac and Jacob were real. Matthew 8, verse 11. Matthew 22, verse 32. Jesus believed Moses was real. Jesus referenced Moses so many times throughout the gospel throughout the gospel narratives that you can't even count them here. Um, Jesus believed David was real. Mark chapter 12, verse 36. Jesus believed Solomon was real. Matthew chapter 6, verse 29. Luke chapter 12, verse 27. Jesus believed Elijah, Elisha, the widow of Zarephath, uh, the guy Naaman who had leprosy. He believed they were real. He talked about them in Luke chapter 4. Jesus believed Zechariah the prophet was real. Um, In Luke chapter 11, he talks about Zechariah, and Jesus even believed that Jonah was a real person. Matthew 12, verse 38 through 42. Jesus believed that all these scriptural people were real. That's the who. Jesus didn't just confirm the who of the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus confirmed the what of the Old Testament scripture. Think about what Jesus said was real in the Old Testament. Jesus said that God actually created mankind and marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verses four and five. Jesus said that Cain actually killed his brother Abel, Luke chapter 11, verse 50 through 52. Jesus said that the flood of Noah actually occurred in Noah's day, Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39. Jesus said that God actually provided manna in the wilderness, John chapter six, verse 49. Jesus said that fire and brimstone actually fell down on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Matthew 10, verse 15. And yes, Jesus said that Jonah actually was swallowed up by a great fish and lived in his belly for three days. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 through 42. Jesus never felt like he had to explain these as parables, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. He never had to refer to them as metaphorical or fictional. He never had to give any disclaimers about any of these stories. He just taught them as if they were real and factual history. That's important for us to know. That's the, what, that's the who and that's the what. But how? How did Jesus speak of Scripture? You need to understand this. Jesus spoke of Scripture as being unbreakable. John chapter 10, verse 34 through 36. Jesus spoke of Scripture as being authoritative. That's why he could correct the Sadducees and the Pharisees. It's why he even corrected uh, Satan. When Satan tried to tempt him using scripture, Jesus said, no, I'm gonna authoritatively correct you on the right interpretation of scripture here. You know, he, he uh, believed, Jesus believed that scripture was God's very words. Over and over, Jesus said, God said, did not God say. God, you know, he refers to the teachings of the Old Testament as God's words. So Jesus affirmed the who of the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, the what of the Old Testament scripture, and the how, how we should view it. Jesus affirmed that it was accurate, 
that it was authoritative, that it was unbreakable. That's the way Jesus viewed the scripture. So here's why I'm bringing all that up, guys. This is really important for you to understand. Why are we talking about all that? It's because the people who will say right now, hey, you know what? Um, only, you know, only an idiot will believe the Bible. That same person must, in order to be consistent, they must then say, well, I guess Jesus was an idiot. That's the consistent flow of the argument there. I don't know about you. I'm not willing to say that about Jesus. Right? I, I think we can very confidently say, hey, Jesus affirmed the scriptures. We affirm the scriptures. I think we can look at skeptics in the eyes and just say, you know what? When it comes to this subject matter, like, we believe that Jesus is right and you're wrong. And we should have no hesitancy to say that. Christians can consider the scripture to be trustworthy because Jesus considered the scriptures to be trustworthy. If you're a Christian who struggles with whether or not you can trust the Bible, honestly, this, the sea of champs, the Christ's view of the scripture, like, that should settle it for you. If you say you trust Jesus, Jesus trusted the scripture, that should settle it for you. I know that for some people that's not quite good enough, which is why I don't just tell you remember the word C, right? We're gonna remember champs. We have some other things we wanna point out here. So let's talk about the H in champs. H stands for the historical accounts. The historical accounts. Guys, the Bible is a collection of historical accounts. This is, this is important for us to understand because so many people will say things like, you know, the Bible is kind of like Aesop's fables. The Bible is just stories for children. And we, we're so caught up in this language of Bible stories now that we forget that the Bible is actually history, like real factual stuff, right? So here, again, part of the reason why this becomes very important to the trustworthiness of Scripture is because people will say things to you like this. They'll say things like, well, you know, um, I want someone to show me that the Bible is kind of like science, like it's, it's provable like science. Well, and I think we just need to remember, well, what's, what does the scientific method actually teach, right? The scientific method says that if something's gonna be considered science, then it needs to be three things, observable, measurable, and what? Repeatable, repeatable. Last I checked, nobody's repeating history, right? Like, unless you have a time machine, right, you can't, we can't prove it that way, right? So we don't use the scientific method to prove the credibility of historical events. What do you use when you're trying to um, confirm or analyze the, you know, the credibility of historical events? Here's what you use. You don't use the scientific method. You use the evidentiary method. You use the evidentiary method. This is what we use in court all the time. Something happened, we've got to make a judgment on it, so what do you do? You bring witnesses to the table, eyewitnesses, you hear their story, you corroborate the stories, and then you make a determination. Guys, this is why it's important for us to understand that the Bible was written, many of the New Testament writers were eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus. We'll talk all the time about why the, you know, that, that the apostles were eyewitnesses. Well, here's why that's important, right? Because of the evidentiary method. Consider this, like the apostle John was an eyewitness of Jesus' life and ministry. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in your New Testament. Here's what John says about himself in 1st John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. We, have test we testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to you, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Right? John is saying he was an eyewitness. He was there when Jesus was on the scene doing his ministry. John's not the only eyewitness in the, amongst the writers of the New Testament. Peter was an eyewitness. Peter, as you know, wrote the books of First and Second Peter. Peter helped Mark write the book of Mark. Here's what Peter says in Second Peter 1, verse 16. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, right? So Peter writes as an eyewitness. It's not just Peter and John. The apostle Paul considered himself an eyewitness and he talked about the other eyewitnesses of scripture. Consider what 
Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three through eight. The apostle Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he, raised, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, which is another name for Peter, then to the 12, talking about the apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. That means they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is saying that he saw Christ, right? That's his story in the book of Acts when he was converted. He says that Jesus appeared to Peter, Cephas, that he appeared to James, but not only those, to the apostles, and not only to the apostles, but to over 500 brothers who were eyewitnesses that he says are still alive, right? That phrase, more, more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, that is a really important phrase in the entirety of scripture. And here's why. It's because that phrase made Paul's account testable to see if it was true, right? In other words, when Paul says 500 people, most of them are still alive, what that infers is, you should be able to find like hundreds of people now that can testify that Jesus died, was buried and rose again. Like you should be able to find hundreds of people. And if you can't go out and find hundreds of people that will still testify to that, then you know what? You can consider Paul's writing to be false. But they couldn't. They couldn't find people to prove that it was false. They, 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 it, was, it was unable, unable to be proven untrue. And that's a really big deal. The Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And these witnesses shared their story. The stories corroborated. The stories were, came together. It could have been proven wrong, but it wasn't. This is really important. This is, this is why we emphasize the, the life of the apostles, the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. Remember what we talked about on Easter Sunday, that part of the reason why we can believe the witness of the apostles is because, look, so many people will say that these, uh, these certain men got together, they made up this story, and they just kind of wanted to trick the world. Look, these guys ended up suffering. They didn't just die in Jesus' name. They suffered for Jesus' name. This is a very important step towards the credibility of their story. It is highly, highly unlikely that men like this would suffer persecution and be willing to die for something that they just made up, right? The Bible was written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who together suffered and died for the historical account that they claimed to tell. The historical accounts of the scripture are important. Um, we see this also emphasized in the writings of Luke. Luke, in the New Testament, Luke was not one of the 12 apostles. He, he didn't claim to be an eyewitness personally to the events of Christ, but he got his information from other people and he wrote it down. Now, think about what Luke wrote down at the beginning of his letter. Luke chapter one, verses one through four. He says this, he says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who have delivered them to us, right? So Paul's saying there's other people, or excuse me, Luke is saying there's other people that were eyewitnesses. They've given stuff to us. Here's what he says in verse three. It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Right here, here is a non-eyewitness writing as a historian, essentially, taking down a credible account so that some other guy who had heard the message of Jesus and wanted to know if it was true, Luke wrote this. He wrote his Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts so that people would believe. Where did the church come from? What's up with the story of Jesus? Here's a true testimony. Guys, here's what we have to understand. The church, meaning Christians for the past 2,000 years, they had to start somewhere, right? It had to have a starting point. Where did it come from? Somebody, so for us, you know, we have to figure out, like, what's our answer to that question? The Christian movement has been huge. Where did it come from? 
There's a German historian named Martin Debellius, and he says it like this. He says, you have to pose it in X big enough to explain the Y of the early church. The best, the best explanation remains that which is given in the Gospels. The historical accounts of the biblical writers help us affirm the trustworthiness of Scripture. Right? That's the CH of champs. Let's move to the A. Here's the A. A stands for archaeology. Archaeological evidence. Guys, time and time again, archaeology has continued to confirm the teachings of Scripture. We have over 25,000 documented archaeological discoveries that have supported the story of Scripture. 25,000. Years ago, Rachel got me, um, my wife Rachel got me a, a study Bible for one of my uh, birthday presents, and it was an archaeological study Bible. So as you read through the Scripture, the study Bible brings forth like, hey, here's historical finds, archaeological finds that support this particular passage or teaching of scripture. I encourage you to, to take a look at that. If this archaeological stuff will be encur- you know, encouraging or help uh, you know, support your faith, I encourage you to check out a magazine called the Biblical Archaeological Review. Um, they are regularly updating with things, uh, examples from, from scripture, archaeological examples that support scripture. I just want to show, point out two to you, right? Two out of 25,000, two that are really important. Um, the first one that I want to show you is the Galileo Proconsul inscription from 1904. All right, the Galileo, the the Galileo. Verse 12, Luke uses the term proconsul, and he refers to a gentleman named Galileo. Um, here's the thing: the word proconsul for a long time, didn't appear in any classical literature or ancient literature. So scholars basically had this hard time saying, like, how can we trust the story of Luke when it's, it it, it seems like nobody used that word proconsul until hundreds of years after Luke's lifetime. Well then, in 1904, in a temple in Delphi, a discovery was made where they found this particular right? 51. So here it is in the lifetime uh, of the Apostle Paul in the lifetime of Luke. Archaeology helped confirm Luke's writings. A second example that we can look to is a lot more uh, modern than that. In 2005, they discovered uh, the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam. In he tells him to go wash in the Pool of Siloam. Well, this pool, um, it, it was supposed to have many steps that, uh, that were nearby it. The descriptions in Scripture made you think, like, this is probably a, a, pretty, big, um, a, a pretty big area. So you'd think you could go to Jerusalem through archaeological digs. You know, you could find this place. Well, nobody found it until 2004. And in 2004, there was a sewage problem actually uh, in Jerusalem's Temple Mount, and so these construction workers had to go and they had to dig up all this particular site. Well, to try to fix this sewer problem, get to fix a sewer pipe. Well, in Jerusalem, you don't dig up anything without bringing some archaeologists around. So all that stuff is super important. So they started to dig, and eventually these big earth movers, they started hitting something that didn't sound quite right. So the archaeologists stopped the dig. What did they end up finding? They saw two steps initially that ended up turning into 225-foot-long series of steps that we now know as uh, the steps to the Pool of Siloam. All this came about in 2005. Archaeology, once again, serving to confirm that portion of the writing of John's Gospel. Guys, these are just, these are two examples out of 200, or out of 25,000. You know, countless other examples. 
you know, one of the things that's encouraging to me, Christianity Today, every year for the past several years, has put out their top 10 um, archaeological finds list. They put out this article about it, 2020, 2019, 2018. You can go back through the years and just read through all these and be on the lookout for them in future years. All that to say, guys, Christians can consider the Bible trustworthy because archaeology leads us to believe that it's trustworthy. So that's the C-H-A of champs, the cha. All right, here we go. Let's get to the M. M, what does M stand for? M stands for manuscripts. Manuscripts. Guys, we have to remember that the manuscripts of Scripture um, help us trust the Bible. So we've got to remember, when the Bible was written, it was written as letters, you know, uh, well, even before the letters were written, right, the, the apostles saw and experienced what they saw and experienced with Jesus. They go and tell the story, but they can't be in a bunch of places at once, so they start writing letters about it. Here's what went on, and they send these letters around. And so the letters would make their way, and then other people would come, and they'd say, oh, I want to read this letter. Let me read what the apostle wrote and this and that. So what do they start doing? They start copying these letters and passing them around so that different people in different areas can read what happened from the eyewitness accounts. So then what's happened over the past 2,000 years, all these manuscripts are starting to be discovered. One of the old, the oldest manuscript that we have is what is known as John Ryland's Fragment. This fragment dates back to around 120 AD. This is really close to the lifetime of the apostles. This isn't the only fragment we have. But this is the oldest. You know, you, know how many, you know how many manuscripts or portions of manuscripts we have? We have, over, we have nearly 6,000. Nearly 6,000 ancient manuscripts. 6,000 is a lot, comparatively speaking. I think everybody in this room would probably say, hey, we, we've heard of Caesar and some of his wars. and you know, Pretty much everything we know about Caesar and the um, Gallic Wars that he was a part of, Pretty much all of those come from 10 manuscripts that are considered credible. We perhaps have heard of Tacitus, the Roman historian. Almost all the history of the Roman Empire that we know, uh, the majority of it written by that guy. You know how many copies of his writings we have? 20. Yet we consider it credible and accurate. Homer's Iliad, You've probably learned about that in school, right? We all trust the credibility of those. We have like 600 copies of that. Guys, we have 6,000 ancient manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that have been preserved throughout time. The amount of ancient scriptural uh, manuscripts is incredible, but it's not just the amount that leads to the trustworthiness of Scripture. It's the accuracy of these Uh, manuscripts. The accuracy. Here's what I mean by that. I'm talking about the consistency. Do they all say the same thing, okay? Because here's what you'll hear from a lot of people who want to be skeptics of the Bible. They'll say, you know, that the message of Scripture, it kind of said one thing initially, but then because of the the copies that were made, you know, it said something different at the end. And they kind of talk about how Scripture is just kind of a big game of telephone, where one person said it here, and then they tell the person, a person, a person, a person, and by the time you get to the person at the end of the line, the message has totally changed. And they're saying kind of like, that's the way it was with Bible, with the Bible, you know, one, it was originally written to say one thing, and then there's translation after translation, different language after different language after different language, till eventually we get to English, and now what we have now, it's not the same as it was before, or at best what we have is a very bad copy. I want you guys to know something, please hear this, like, that is not true, right? That is just not true because the way we have English Bibles today, the English Bible I'm holding in my hands and the English Bible that you read, it doesn't come because, you know, it was, we took the Greek, you know, New Testament and then it got translated into Arabic and then to French and then German and then eventually through all the languages made its way to English. That's not the way it works. Our English copies are made straight from the original language of Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. There's, it, there's one generation of translations there. There's not 10 or 12 in between. That is really important for each of us to understand about the trustworthiness of our Bible. Another thing that people will say is they'll say things like this. Um, well, you don't have the original writings of the apostles 
And the earliest copies that we have, like the John Ryland fragment and others, they don't say 100% the exact same thing. They've been changed over time. And I would say this, like, at least to a certain extent, that's true. They're not 100% the same. But you know what the changes are? Spelling changes or the use of articles make up 99.5% of all the discrepancies we see in the early manuscript. Spelling changes. Here's what I mean by that. Is should, should the name John be spelled with one N or two? Um, should, uh, you know, when, when we talk about Mary, Mary's name might be spelled one way in one of the early fragments, differently in one of the other fragments. Um, it, there are different uses of, of articles, like the word the or an or a, right? Like, and so those types of changes, they make, those discrepancies, they make up like 99.5% of the discrepancies in the early manuscripts. The other 0.5%, are, they are, um, they're things like this. They're wording changes like this. Mark chapter nine, verse 29. Jesus is talking to his disciples about why they couldn't cast out a demon from a certain person. And you might remember this. Jesus says to his disciples, Jesus says, this kind of demon can only be cast out by prayer. That's what one of the copies says. Well, then you have another ancient manuscript where Jesus seems to say, this type can only be cast out by prayer and fasting, right? And so there's a discrepancy there. One copy says the phrase and fasting, the other one doesn't. I don't know about you, but those types of discrepancies, that's not enough for me to toss out the credibility of, of the Bible. It's not enough at all. Um, the, the amount of early manuscripts that we have and the consistent accuracy of the early manuscripts, it's incredible, you guys. It, it lends itself for us to believe that the Bible is certainly trustworthy. That's the M in champs, the manuscripts. Let's talk about the P. The P stands for prophecy. Prophecy. We believe that the Bible can be trusted because of the fulfillment of prophecy. Um, you know, I gotta rush through or else we actually will go an hour. But there are like 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. Approximately 2,000 of those have already been fulfilled. We trust that the rest will be fulfilled. But 2,000 out of around 25, uh, 2,500 have been fulfilled. The likelihood, the scientific likelihood of all that is like 10 to the 2,000th power, right? Like, it's amazing. Josh McDowell, in that study that I listed earlier, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he goes very specifically through these specific prophecies that came true, not just proclaimed to be true because of one part of the Bible being referenced in another part of the Bible, but he actually uses extra-biblical sources, historical documents to show how these historical prophecies came true. I, I, it's really amazing to read this. Um, many of the prophecies of the Old Testament are messianic prophecies. They talk about the coming Messiah, what Jesus would be like. There's like 350 to 360 messianic prophecies. What we have to understand is they were written hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. Like uh, the book of uh, Micah, for instance, says that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Well, Jesus didn't control where he was born, right? Like he's born with Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Scripture affirmed itself. You know, um, you read Isaiah chapter 53 and you just read through what's going on there and you start to see this, this suffering, this beating, this wounding of a Messiah. You read Psalm 22 and it talks about the, the very, uh, the, the, the pain, the, the body of, of the Messiah not being broken. And then you start to read the way that Jesus' crucifixion and his death played out. And you can see like, whoa, Isaiah 53, that was written six to 700 years before Jesus was crucified. Psalm 22 was written like a thousand years before Jesus was crucified. You know, the fulfillment of all these prophecies helps us know that the Bible is trustworthy, right? So, so that's the champ of champs. Here's the S, the last point. The last point is we can believe that the Bible is true because of its self-authentication. Self-authentication. When I say that the Bible self-authenticates, here's what I mean. The Bible proves itself to be true. 
The Bible proves itself to be true. It self-authenticates. I want to share a handful of things about this, but the first thing I want to say is this. We need to remember that throughout the past 2,000 years, many types of people have come to know Christ. They've trusted in Jesus Christ, their Savior. They've believed the testimony of Scripture, and they didn't need all this evidence and historical data and archaeology and all the stuff that I pointed out to you today. They didn't need that. Children have believed the gospel. Simple fishermen, illiterate tribesmen from other, you know, parts of the world, different continents, they've come to believe the message of Christ. And so have educated people, like teachers and professors and kings and presidents and adults, you know? Like, why does that happen? Here's why it happens. It's because the Bible self-authenticates. It makes itself real to people. The, The truth is about every human being, like we're not just physical beings. We are spiritual beings. And the Bible talks about how our spiritual man can be made alive, how our spiritual eyes can be made open. The apostle Peter wrote about this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. Peter says this, he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying this, that the truth of Scripture, it's like a lamp in a dark place. It's like when when the lamp is way over there and you're way over here, like the closer you get to the lamp, the closer the lamp gets to you, the brighter it shines, right? Just like the dawning of the morning sun, like when, when, when the morning sun is rising and it's on the horizon, it's dark for a long time, but the closer you get to daybreak, you know, the brighter it gets outside. That's the way it is. And Peter is saying, you know, you need to pay attention until the morning star rises in your hearts because one day, it's almost like you know many people, they'll hear about Christianity, the testimony of Christ, somebody will witness to them and it's almost like a penny kind of spinning around in one of those like old little penny games until eventually it spins and droop, it drops, boom, all of a sudden it becomes real to them. And that's what's saying, it's like the, the light bulb comes on. These are Peter's words from, from 2 Peter uh, chapter one. The Apostle Paul makes the same point but says it a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. The Apostle Paul says that the God of this world, talking about Satan, he has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Right? So he's saying your mind has spiritual eyes and Satan keeps us blind. For what purpose? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim, right, what the message Paul was proclaiming is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who has said, let the light shine out of darkness, right? God spoke, creation, out of darkness, light came. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Bible is, the truth of the Bible is revealed to us the way light is revealed to a blind man. I want you to hear this. The truth of the Bible is revealed to us the way light is revealed to a blind man. You might say, well, that seems kind of dumb, Jason. A blind man can't see the light. I say, okay, well, think about the sun. A blind man can feel the sun, uh, he can sense the effects of the sun. He can, he can, you know, experience the heat of the sun, but he can't see the source of light unless someone makes him see. And when someone makes him see, all the things he sensed and felt, now he sees the source. Guys, that's exactly what God does to somebody that he makes a Christian. (laughs) He opens our blind eyes to see the truth of the message, to see the truth of his son. We might feel God at work. We might have some sense that God is real, but we're blind to the source until our spiritual eyes get open. So it works like this, guys. There's a gospel message. There's a gospel message. It's news. It's history. It's the proclamation of the message of Jesus Christ that he lived that he died, was buried in the ground, 
rose on the third day, that he ascended back into heaven, that he sent his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit now comes to live in the hearts of those who believe. And what we come to believe through the power of the Holy Spirit is that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, to pay the price for our sins. The Bible teaches us that God created the world perfectly, sin came into the world, messed it up terribly, and that you and I contribute to the sin problem because each of us have sin in our hearts. So sin is like a debt that needs to be paid. There's gotta be something to remove that, that debt in our hearts towards God. And so that debt was paid, how? By Jesus coming and taking the wrath and the punishment of God on the cross. He did it not to pay for his own sins, but to pay for your sins and to pay for my sins, to pay for the sins of all who would believe. And that's the message of the gospel. He validated that message when he rose from the grave three days later. And so when somebody hears that, you know, you hear the message of the gospel, there comes a time when you might, you might be like, oh yeah, you know, I heard grandma taught me about how Jesus died on the cross and he rose again. And you kind of hear the facts. And then after a while, you might be thinking like, okay, why is this such a big deal? And all of a sudden there starts to be this thing stirring in your heart where you realize like, wait, he did that for me? He did to pay, that, to pay for my sins? That's a personal thing? You know what that is? That's the light bulb coming on. That's God opening your eyes to the reality of the gospel. We are blind to that light until God opens our spiritual eyes so we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When you become a Christian, the message of Jesus it moves from being historical to personal. When you become a Christian, it's not just that you affirm the facts, it's that you love the person of Jesus. When you become a Christian, guys, Jesus doesn't just become some guy in history. He becomes precious to you. And that's when the light of the gospel has shined in your heart and your eyes are opened and you can see. The message of Jesus is the message of the Bible. And when you become a Christian, it's true and precious and glorious to you, just like the scripture says it will be. The Bible self-authenticates. It's revealed to us the way that light is revealed to a blind man. It's self-authenticating. Now, what I know is that many people who think you know, they're philosophical and smart and stuff like that, they're gonna say things like this. They're gonna say, well, when you say that the Bible is self-authenticating, that's just circular reasoning because you're trying to use the Bible to prove the Bible. And here's what I would say. I would, here's my response to that. My response is, well, first of all, um, the self-authentication of Scripture, just remember, that's not my only reason right? Like that's just the S of champs. Like there's five other reasons that I just gave you. But I would say, second of all, this isn't circular reasoning. This is, this is actually consistent reasoning for a Christian. And here's why it's consistent. It's because if we believe as Christians that the Bible is actually God's word, then we believe that this is the highest authority that there is. Therefore, if we're waiting for something like science or uh, personal experience to um, you know, put its stamp of approval on the Bible, you know what we've just done? We've just granted higher authority to science or to personal experience. So if I'm gonna say I believe in God and that I believe this is his word, then I will say the most credible, the most consistent reason for believing in God's word as the message of the scripture is by the scripture's self authentication I've given you all these reasons from champs here right like I've shared a lot with you today but here's the truth I want you guys to know this I'm I'm not ultimately here to defend the Bible and you don't really need to be here to defend the Bible either I'm not, I'm, what I mean by that is I'm not here to try to justify its position on every topic in the Bible that's controversial today. I'm not here to make natural, logical, kind of physical sense out of all the supernatural occurrences in the scripture. I'm not here to explain to you why you feel like you should like everything that's in the Bible. I'm not here to defend the Bible itself. 
I'm more aligned with Charles Spurgeon in his 1888 sermon called The Lover of God's Law Filled with Peace. Here's what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, the word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you that lion, right? He starts to talk about the scripture as a lion. See you that lion, they have caged him for his preservation. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of all its adversaries. The word of God is a lion. You don't need to defend it. I don't need to defend it. It can defend itself. That's why we started out with the reading from Proverbs that says the word of God proves true. Itself authenticates. I'm not here to defend the Bible. I'm here to tell you why I personally believe that the Bible is trustworthy. I've shown you why. I've given you the acronym of CHAMPS. Six reasons. I believe the Bible is trustworthy because of Christ's affirmation of the scriptures, because of the historical accounts of the eyewitnesses, because of the abundance of archaeological evidence, because of the amount and the accuracy of the manuscripts, because of the prophecies and their fulfillment, and because the Bible self-authenticates. Guys, all these things make the Bible absolutely trustworthy to me. Plus, my mama taught me so. And I've tried it, and it's worked. And if you try, it will work for you. I hope all these reasons are helpful to you today. They've been helpful to me, and I just want to say it very clearly. This is why I, as the pastor of this church, preaching in this church, this is why I will preach the Bible unapologetically and without reservation. It's really because I just want to let the lion out of the cage. Let's pray. Father, we stop for a minute right now and we just want to say thank you. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for speaking to us through these words written down on paper. Thank you for speaking through the prophets of old, through the apostles, through the eyewitnesses. Thank you for giving us this message from you that is it is light to blind men like us lord thank you for the gospel message thank you that it ever came to me and that i could hear and believe and that for everybody in this room who believes thank you that it came to us i pray lord for people in this room who may doubt from time to time why they can trust the bible let today lord let this message make an impact on them i pray father that we would be confident in your word i pray father that um for people who Uh, may be here and they're a seeker, a skeptic, they would not consider themselves a Christian and one of the hurdles that's been in front of them has been whether or not the Bible is credible. I pray that today you would remove a hurdle, bring them closer to you. Lord, by your grace, would you bring somebody home, all the way home to you today in faith? I pray, Lord, for uh, us as parents who have to give answers to our children and those of us who are gonna go to work tomorrow and we're gonna talk to our coworkers and our adult friends and people who have questions, Lord, bring this uh, message back to our minds and our hearts as a piece of equipping, Lord, that helps us be ready to give an answer to the, for the faith that we have. Lord God, I pray ultimately that you would help us be a church that doesn't just know the Bible intellectually, but that we would be a church knowing you personally through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we wouldn't just trust your word, but that we would treasure you as our God and our Lord and Christ as our Savior. It's in his name I pray, amen.